Erin Ruff, and this is Conversational Commerce, the podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends by talking shop with the Retail Dive team, thought leaders, and executives. It's January, and if you're in retail, you know exactly what that means. It's the time of year when thousands of thought leaders, executives, tech gurus, and journalists invade New York City for NRF's annual Big Show conference. Now, it's almost impossible to see and hear everything at the Big Show, so the Retail Dive team did the legwork for you. On the last day, we huddled up in the podcast booth to talk through our biggest takeaways, which fall into a couple of buckets. There's, of course, the transformation of big box retailers like Walmart, Target, and Lowe's, as well as a new wave of direct-to-consumer brands who are taking a bolder approach than ever in their marketing. Tech, of course, is always front and center at this show, but surprisingly this year, so too were conversations about diversity and inclusion, especially when it comes to promoting women in the workplace. You'll hear all of this and a whole lot more, so let's dive in. Big Show in New York City. It's Tuesday afternoon on January 15th, and I'm really happy to be back here in the studio, and this time joined by most of the Retail Dive team. So as always, I am the host, Corinne Ruff. I am a reporter on the publication. I'm Kara Salpini. I'm here. I'm an editor on Retail Dive. My name is Karin Vebar, and I'm an editor at Retail Dive. And I am Liza Casabona. I'm the managing editor of Retail Dive. So it's been a crazy couple of days. We've all been kind of running around, going to panels, talking to executives. Um, It's a great time for us to just meet new people, but also take the pulse of the industry. What are people talking about? What is new and different? And how is that going to shape the year ahead? So um, I want to spend you know some time talking about what we've seen and you know what that means for the rest of the year. So let's kind of kick this off in a couple of different buckets. I, I want to start by talking first about how big box stores are reinventing themselves because that was really clearly a trend that happened through a lot of the big keynote panels. Kara, I know you went to a couple of them. Maybe you could start with talking about Lowe's. Um, Marvin Ellison is always a figure we're watching. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I went to a panel that Marvin Ellison was speaking at, and he really broke down sort of his strategy for the retailer going forward. And one of his main focus points was going back to the basics, focusing on retail fundamentals. Retail 101 was kind of uh, what he was calling it. And one of his main points was just not being sidetracked by everything else that they could be working on and everything else that they could be focusing on before they got those fundamentals right. So that was really um, his focus point during that panel. But I also attended one on uh, Macy's today. So Jeff Gannett was the moderator and he was talking to Story and Mark Sent and Beta and that was an entirely different strategy. So it was really interesting to sort of juxtapose those because he's really bringing in uh, Beta and Story to redefine what the department store is and it's very much not going back to basics. It's it's taking that model and sort of flipping it. And that's something that Macy's needs right now, right? Like we just saw them have a very bad holiday season. Definitely, yeah. So I'm, I'm interested to see where they go with that and uh, Rachel Sheck hinted at we would be finding out soon when Story was coming into Macy's stores, but she didn't give us anything else on that front. 
Yeah, another big store that I want to talk about was Target. Brian Cornell, the CEO, spoke yesterday, and he wanted to talk about what's changed over the course of a decade because they just had their best sales in a decade, and a lot of that is due to the investment that he put into the stores. And so he was talking about a decade ago, stores and e-commerce teams were completely separate, um, and he now credits the stores and the investments they put in building new small format stores, but also revamping the old ones into the fact that now that's also driving their digital sales. And also that their stores delivered, I think, about 65% of their online orders. So that he really credits, and you know, Target had a great holiday season as well, um, whereas some other retailer players didn't. So interesting to see how he's talking about stores, delivery, and e-commerce as fueling the growth there. Walmart, obviously, is another big retailer that we cover. Um, they were here talking about technology. Eliza, you were at their panel. Yeah, so it was interesting. They talked a little bit about splitting out the store-focused technology that they have from the sort of back-office operational technology that they have, which is more HR benefits management, internal communications, those kinds of things. Um, but they've hired, I think he said, 30,000 people to deal with grocery pickup, online orders, picking in stores for grocery orders, and that they're going to add another 2,000 headed into this year. So they're clearly looking at this tech as important. Um, and he said that in part in response to a question about does the technology eliminate the human side of your business? Are you going to lose people? And his point was that there's more work to be done than humans to do it, and that they see tech as freeing up their employees to do other things, and that there's other needs that now come up for them. So they're not concerned about like the job loss question, I think, is like what we always think about when we hear about like automation and warehouses or stores. Exactly. It sounds like that there's still a human component that they see as important to that technology for them. Absolutely. I also want to talk about stores um, and how different thought leaders think about them and don't think about them. Kara Swisher, co-founder of Recode, um, notably does not think stores will exist in the future. And I think that's always a big shock to an audience of retailers that depend on stores. But I think it's worth you know, just reminding people that some people don't see a future with stores and think that Gen Z will only purchase things on their phones and through brands online. And so that was kind of interesting to hear her say that. Well, and the counterpoint to that was, right, so Lee Peterson from WD Partners always has some predictions that make people a little bit nervous around what could be the future. Um, But his point was that shopping isn't dead yet, that there are things that retailers can do to bring folks into their stores or their shopping areas. He called out Walmart as an example of someone with the town centers that they're doing where they're bringing in all these extra services. And he pointed to a survey that they've done talking about digital natives and digital immigrants. So people in two of the demographics people care about. There are certain things that they will go back into a shopping environment for, and farmers markets and food halls were big ones. He talked about fitness centers, he talked about co-working spaces, but that it's really those, the food ones were the top ones, but if you look at the Walmart town center, they really added a lot of these extra services. So Kara Swisher may be right that (laughs) stores will change, but Lee Peterson's point was, you just have to rethink how you're looking at shopping and the experience of shopping and that we need to rethink what we think of as a store sort of all together. Yeah, I think that that's a fair point that was made by by others too. I know Doug Stevens from Retail Profit, who has been on this podcast before talking about the future of retail, said that younger generations just have a higher sensitivity to what is boring and are not willing to you know go through boring store experiences. They just demand more. 
So kind of the flip side of looking at big box, of course, is this big trend, this onslaught of direct-to-consumer, digitally native brands, which is something that we are increasingly talking about. So let's talk a little bit about what we're seeing from some of these new brands. Kara, you went to the Allbirds panel. Yeah, for sure. It was really interesting. It had Allbirds uh, co-founder and co-CEO, Tim Brown, and um, he talked about the business and why he made it, but one of the most interesting things to me was that he noted there are already a lot of copycats to the Allbirds brand. And his whole idea with making Allbirds was to make this really simple shoe and it's like free of logos. He didn't want the brand name on it. And he noted that a lot of those copiers will like put the brand name onto, onto a portion of the shoe and they're not exactly copying his sustainable uh, materials that he's using. So he was a little disappointed that that wasn't part of what copied over to his rivals. And another sort of interesting point from that panel, he didn't think of, of his product as filling sort of a gap in the market, was, which is what you see a lot with direct-to-consumer brands. They think they're solving a specific problem in the market or filling a gap in the market. Uh, he really pointed out to me, I talked to him after that panel, that this was just something that he personally craved. He was a professional soccer player before he founded the business, and he was like, you know, I, I'm tired of being a billboard. I didn't want to show other people's logos on all of my clothing. Um, so it was very personal for him. And it was, it was just really interesting to hear what his thoughts were sort of on, on the direct-to-consumer space and, and the competition that's arisen from, from that brand. Yeah, talk about a career change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen, it seems like there's a quote-unquote Warby Parker or Bonobos of every category now with direct-to-consumer. So it was just interesting hearing from different people how that's growing and changing. Um, it seems like the consensus now is there's there's no pure play, just online businesses. If you truly want to be a business that can make a lot of revenue, you need to also have physical elements to you as well. I sat on a really interesting panel that was someone from Walmart you know, that's growing their digital brands and also talking with venture capital folks. And something that was interesting from there was that Adam Vulcan, who's the managing director at General Catalyst. Um, they're an investor of Outdoor Voices, which is another interesting DTC brand that we covered. And one that partnered with Allbirds, actually, at one point. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, like, it's funny to see those like kind of cross-collaborations within that environment. Definitely. But the thing that he said, right, is that now that there's so many more of them, so how do you pick winners and losers as a venture capital firm? Like, who are you going to invest in? And he was saying, now you either have to be this like consumer phenomenon or find a portfolio approach where your business would make sense connected to others, right? And that's the Walmart example of picking up Bonobos, ModCloth, Eloqui. But he's seeing a lot of brands that just get capped at 20 to $40 million, and there's just nowhere to go from there. So I think, I think it's interesting to think about, you know, is there more space within direct-to-consumer? I talked to a couple of founders from some new brands. Um, NYX, they're an Intimates brand, Ori, a jewelry brand. And, you know, both of them kind of still see space. We're seeing some legacies in those spaces, like Victoria's Secret, for instance, fall. But it seems like, you know, they're able to grow on the back of social missions, which is something else that I want us to talk about a little bit. Nix, for instance, took advantage of, uh, you know, within their campaigns to talk about women's issues, to talk about infertility, to talk about the fact that for a long time, the intimates industry actually shamed women and would guilt them for feeling a certain way or having their bodies look or not look a certain way. Um, 
Um, so I think that's very much the core still of these direct-to-consumer brands that have a really personal relationship. And if they want to keep up that authenticity, they need to be a little bit bolder in terms of social topics. Yeah, for sure. And that's also come up in uh, a few of the panels that I've attended as well. Um, just today, I went to uh, a panel with Patagonia CEO Rose Marcario, and she talked a lot about uh, that retailer's mission of they're, they're investing in a lot of grassroots environmentalist causes. They donated uh, $10 million of their tax refund to environmental efforts. They just changed their mission statement to, to something along the lines of, we are in business to save our home planet. So they're very dedicated to those efforts. And, and in that panel, she talked about their supply chain and their plan is to have a carbon neutral supply chain by 2025. And they're very committed to those efforts and convinced that shoppers shop with them in, in large part because they have those strong values and because they're not sacrificing on that front. And another sort of example that I saw at the show um, there was a panel with Dick Sporting Goods CEO Ed Stack, and he talked about a lot of things. But one of the things that he touched on was their uh, the, their decision to cut assault-style rifles from field and stream stores after the high school shooting in Parkland, Florida, and that was a very emotional decision. And he sort of talked about how. The board has discussed that decision in months since then, and all of them were 100% behind it. And even though it's sort of impacted recent earnings, they're not concerned about the future, and they're not concerned about the fact that, that they made this tough kind of controversial decision that is going to alienate uh, some of their customers. So that's another example of just how many retailers are taking a stand on something, having values actually does matter to customers and, and gets you a lot of loyalty from them as well. Well, and that's an interesting point, right? There's a realization, I think, that yes, it's the right decision conscience-wise, but there's a real business advantage in some of those decisions. Scott Galloway talked about this a little bit in his sort of trends talk uh, earlier in the show as well. He called it woke as a business strategy or woke as a business decision is something that he foresees brands doing more of moving forward. But that's in direct response to an understanding of a consumer, a young consumer, a progressive consumer, a right. consumer with expendable income uh, that supports a lot of these decisions. He pointed to Nike as another example with the Colin Kaepernick campaign they did earlier this year, which, Kara, I know you wrote about <laughs> <Yeah>. at the <laughs> time, there was, right, prognosticators were saying this could be bad for business. Uh, Scott Galloway pointed out it might lose them a very small part of their business and then shore up and grow an expanding part of their business that they think is critically important. So they get to make the right decision from if you support them. those benefits, <laughs> and it's also a good business decision for them. So it's an interesting trend. We'll see. We'll see who else does it next. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and in this whole, you know, talking about um, social issues, but also the business case for them, um, definitely came into play in terms of talking about diversity and inclusion, especially supporting women in retail. Um, it was like all of a sudden everyone woke up to the fact that businesses weren't supporting women in retail. We saw more and more panels talk about this. Um, one of the first panels that I went to on Sunday talked about how can businesses do more to support women in retail. Um, and one that stood out to me was Carolyn Tastad from p 
P&G, and she was talking about how, okay, businesses now, when they're hiring junior level staff, are doing much, much better. There's more 50-50 representation. But then once you go higher up the food chain, you see fewer and fewer women. Um, so what are companies not doing enough to give women opportunities early on to you know, get to those VP level roles and get to executive level roles? Because I think it is frightening when we look at the Fortune 500 companies. 2017, there was an all-time high of, I think, about 32 female CEOs of those companies. And then last year, it plummeted to 24. So we're seeing some, actually, we're going backwards in time. Um, so it was encouraging, I think, to see more panels address this issue a little bit more honestly. Even Andy Dunn, founder of Bonobos, talks about how he spent five whole days going to women's leadership and women's issues conferences and um, understanding better like what the needs are of women and people of color. So I think that was kind of encouraging to hear from. Karin, I know you went to a couple panels spotlighting female entrepreneurs. Do you have anything to add? I think it really is that it's become a subject that suddenly everybody wants to discuss because it's timely. And I don't know if we've figured out as an industry really how to integrate it in a really practical way. But um, the fact that people are discussing it right now is actually really encouraging as like a first step to like understanding that, that this is an issue that has to be addressed. And the, re the way change is made is like through conferences like this to put it up front of mind. Yeah, and Liza, earlier you were talking about how this also ties into, you know, talent acquisition and retention, and, you know, this is also an HR issue. Yeah, and it's interesting. So this is a trend that you see, actually, I think across the business world is a recognition that people are your biggest asset. Uh, the diversity and inclusion is also about not excluding, va you know, vast sections of the potential employee base that could bring in new perspectives, that bring in knowledge that you need that bring in sometimes knowledge of your customer base. But there's an increasing, I think, recognition among retailers. And it was certainly reflected in the number of panels here in the last few days about recruiting and communicating with employees and managing their schedules and providing them with tech that connects your store associate to the company brand and hiring and retaining folks that reflect your employer brand because there's an increasing recognition that who you are as a company, your mission and your culture, and who your public-facing employees are to your community, to your customers, those are essentially the same message. You have to be very careful that those brands coincide. Uh, I sat through a panel earlier today that indeed moderated with some of the best retailers to work for based on their surveys with users of their site. It was with HEB, Best Buy, and Foot Locker. Uh, but one of the quotes that the woman from Indeed pointed to was from an executive at Nabisco where they talk about they treat all of their employees as though they're potential customers, that those things are basically intertwined. Uh, and the quote she gave was, everybody eats cookies. <laughs> so there's this idea that if you're hiring somebody and then they're cycling out very quickly, which we know is a problem in the retail industry, and then they go on and they had a terrible experience of you as an employer, well, now your brand might get dinged on a customer level as well. So it's just a really interesting uh, recognition, I think, of the humans in organizations and the role that they play internally, externally for a brand. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, heard other conversations in terms of, you know, as retailers try to go after different demographics and try to cater to, you know, a diverse representation of consumers, you know, you need to have employees that represent those different ethnicities and religions and genders. And one thing that I heard on a panel was talking about Salesforce, calling them out as an example. You know, they're not a company that we cover within the retail industry, but one policy that they have is they just won't have a meeting if they don't have enough diversity within that meeting. They just won't have it. 
You know, the other thing that is always apparent at NRF is technology, um, shiny technology, as well as, in some cases, practical technology. Um, but we saw a lot of robots. A lot of robots and very shiny objects. I mean, the thing about NRF that I really love is that everybody loves to talk about AI. They love to talk about tech. This is something that is always discussed in various ways. And so we all saw things like drones and trying to understand how products are placed in stores and how drones can help aid that. We saw mobile devices for checkout and how um, employees throughout a store can use that as a way to like speed up the checkout process. We saw tech cashierless technology, lots of inventory management systems. But the thing that I always want to ask when I see the shiny fun technology is, has it already been deployed? And can it be deployed at scale? Because those are entirely different questions. It's like, it's great that it exists, but in what way can it practically um, be available to the consumer? And is it going to happen right now? Or is it going to happen like a few years from now? Which are uh, very different ways to look at it other than the fact that like it's just here being exhibited. Um, but the things that they are discussing a lot has to do with facial technology, automated sorting at warehouses, stuff that also practically helps out retailers on the back end in order to really serve the consumer in different ways. Wasn't there one, you said there was some front-facing tech though that you saw last year, at last year's NRF yeah. that you saw in practice in a store. Yeah, it was. So um, last year I was really excited about some beauty technology with the magic mirror. You can go up to it and put on your makeup for you. And it was very clever and fun and interesting. And I loved kind of interacting with it here at NRF. And then I was at the CoverGirl store this year, a few days ago, and I saw it and play it around with it. And I was like, oh, here it is. It's not something that I had to wait around for forever. It's in the store. I could play around with it. And made my lashes look so good that I bought the <laughs> mascara. Like that's the practical application yeah. of it where this thing, it's not just like flashy to be flashy, but there is kind of a purpose behind it. And it gives um, consumers another touch point in order to interact with your brand and it gives brands a way to tell a story. And um, that's when the application is really fun and really exciting when people can actually use it. People have talked about that a lot also, like just in the beauty industry at large, um, AR has been like a huge thing for, for that particular sector of retail because you find that at Sephora as well, Macy's with their recent renovation added Demon in Marcus some of those too. kiosks. Yeah. yeah, so that's definitely becoming um, much more of a thing, especially in, in the beauty sector because they have a an actual utilization for AR. The the problem with AR in retail right now is that not many people have figured out a way that it's actually worthwhile to use. And in beauty, it actually is worthwhile because it's faster to try on the makeup with AR than to put the makeup on your face and have to take it off after right. you've tested it out. So it's it's a good use case for technology actually doing something for the customer. And the customer being able to have a tangible item at the end because it wasn't something where AR was utilized in a way where like then I had to spend $5,000 on a project. No, I had to like spend 10 bucks on a mascara and I walked out of the store. Like, So there was something where I could have it available in my hand right now that was really exciting. Well, and I think I keep hearing the term customer centricity, which seems like such a basic logical decision of how you should decide what to do both in your merchandising and your product selection, but also perhaps in the tech you're adopting. But it feels like this year that's actually like, oh, let's do that. And that means paying attention to what a consumer will use, what a consumer wants in a new way. And I think, you know, to tie it back to some of what you were talking about earlier, direct to consumers pushing that. Yeah. There are brands who are speaking very directly and very authentically 
to people pushing mainstream retailers or traditional retailers, legacy retailers, whatever term you want to use, pushing some of them to get smart. CoverGirl's been around as a brand for ever yeah. but they're you know and they have I think it's their first store it's their first flagship, and they yeah. have this really exciting tech adoption that's kind of exciting it is to jump off your point too Liza I mean I think that's a major reason why we see so many big box retailers interested in direct-to-consumer brands like that's why Target wanted to invest in Casper that's why they bought shipped you know they're buying these brands because they have a direct relationship with the customer and they can talk to them in a really authentic way that you know it's like you can't do that with Target I don't feel like I have any personal connection to Target but I might to a smaller brand that I know because of Instagram and they actually read my comment and um, you know I was talking to the CEO of Brandless earlier and she was talking about how, you know, they're really big on creating a community and they want to listen to what the customer is saying. And one example she gave is she didn't realize that a lot of people who have celiac, you know, need to make sure there's not gluten in like surface cleaners because if you touch a countertop, that can be really harmful to you. And she didn't even know that until she saw it in a comment and then they were able to kind of like filter that back through the awareness of that product. Another tech thing that I saw this year too was building off tech that was already deployed in stores. And I loved seeing that too because it was building off of something that consumers are already familiar with. So um, one example was self-service checkout where you can go into lots of grocery stores and drug stores these days and go to to a self-service checkout. But this was tech that was smarter in a way where it was a little bit more intuitive when you encountered it. Because the great thing about self-service is that it's another option, but the hard thing about it is it doesn't work sometimes. Like There's a practicality to, like, oh, it looks like it's going to be a lot quicker, but it takes me a long time. And so the tech that I was saying this year was more about we, so people are familiar with this already, like how do we refine it and how do we deploy it in a way where it, people already know about it, but it, the engagement is quicker and it's also more streamlined. So um, for one example, I saw that there was a camera above um, where the self-service checkout center was. And so if people were having problems, it was really easy for um, associates to see what was going on. And they it went to a watch. It went to a watch that people were wearing to say, oh, this person needs help here. And you know that, that technology is already here. And being able to refine it in a way that is actually helpful can make a big difference with the shopping experience. So it, it, it cuts down on those pain points and that frustration for the shopper. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as we're kind of wrapping up here, I just wanted to open up the floor. Anyone have any final comments on, um, I know for, for Karen and I and, and Karin, this is, you know, a couple of years that we've been here now. Liza, this is your first time being at the craziness of the big show. Well, first time back after a long back time after away. a long time. Took and it is exponentially larger. <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground. There was a lot of, it's a good broad view of the industry. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest takeaway for us from the highest of high levels. This is kind of the kickoff to the year for retailers and businesses. These are the trends that they expect to see over the course of the year. So seeing more transformation, I'm sure, with big box retailers, more action from direct to consumer, more technology, be it shiny or practical, and hopefully more efforts to incorporate more diverse people within the workforce and also to cater more to more diverse customers. Great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversational Commerce. For all the latest news and trends, subscribe to our free daily newsletter at retaildive.com. And stay tuned for more episodes. Next up, you'll hear another great conversation from NRF's Big Show. This one, all about women from women. I sat down with Su Tian Dong, who is the co-founder of the Female Founders Fund. 
and Jennifer Braunschweiger, who is the VP of Brand Marketing at Women's Clothing and Styling Service, MM LaFleur. Together, we talked about what's really holding women back in retail and what can be done to better support them, whether that's by funding more female-founded businesses, fixing the pay gap, or supporting a customer base of female executives through the clothing that they wear. All that and more next. For now, I'm Corinne Ruff, and this was Conversational Commerce.